Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. This is God's word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil, evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Our Father, we bow before you this morning, the one who calls us by name, gives us your own name, and calls us to yourself. It is in Christ that we find our life and our hope, and it is eager hearts that we bring before you today. Some eager, some sluggish, but eager nonetheless. Would you meet us? Would you fill us with beauty and truth? Would you help us to see Christ? It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we come to uh, what turns out to be the end of a series that today. If you've been uh, in town and, or in and out of town, but if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know we've been in this long passage, actually a short passage relatively speaking, but we've taken our time just um, one bite at a time, so to speak, to to walk through uh, these rich uh, categories that the Apostle Paul lays before us. The first uh, words read today was where this series begins and ends, really. Let love be genuine. That is the umbrella overarching thesis to the whole deal. Let love be genuine. And then Paul goes on to show us in two categories what that love looks like. It looks, it looks like love for one another. And it looks like love for those who are outside of our relationships, outside the church, outside of our faith. He's echoing, as you certainly have recognized or picked up, he echoes the words of Jesus, doesn't he? That we read in the Gospels. We heard one earlier this morning. But he's echoing even uh, words that he started with. The categories here, verse, verse 10 in chapter 12, is love one another with brotherly affection. 
That is one of the categories. That is one of the directions that our, that our heart is to run to, to ro- run to one another with brotherly affection, echoing Jesus' words in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, where he states, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. But he's also echoing out of the Gospels, Jesus' words that we heard earlier in Luke 6 and also in, in Matthew 5 when he says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. You've heard it said, Jesus says in, Luke, in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, it's been told you to love, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and then he turns the tables. He surprises his followers with words like these. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm really not proud of the fact that I earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from a liberal arts college without taking a single class in English literature. Um, And I've been playing catch-up ever since. Uh, but if you're in high school wondering how do you do that, let me tell you it's, it's, it's was entirely due to all of the hard work that I did in high school from a very good English teacher. So you don't get around it one way or the other, but I've been playing catch up and I was doing so standing in a bookstore once upon a time and I had in my hands a book that I had heard about and it was under the section called Classics and I knew that I needed to do reading in that area. And every time I'd picked up one of those classics, I was glad that I did. But I was holding in my hands a book entitled The Three Musketeers. When someone tapped me on the shoulder, someone I had never seen before, and looked at me in the eyes with a plaintive face, said, that is a great book. So I left the bookstore with my paperback copy of The Three Musketeers, and it was less than a week later that I closed it and said, yes, he was right. That was a good book. It was a great book. It may be that Alexander Dumas wrote another better book. I can't say that for sure because it's a thousand pages and I have yet to complete the count of Monte Cristo, but I've seen the film version three different times. And I commend the film and probably the book uh, to you. Um, In that fascinating adventure story, we learn about Edmond Dantes. The story takes place in France, Italy, and the Mediterranean in the early 19th century. And one one of the characters in the story is Napoleon. That sets it in its historical context. Edmund Dantes was a young merchant sailor who on the eve of his wedding was falsely accused of treason, wrongly imprisoned, and spent the next 13 years chained in solitary confinement in a fortress that was impenetrable. Spoiler alert, he does escape. But it's how he escaped 
and how he goes about extracting revenge on his accusers, his false accusers, his enemies, that is the marvel of the story. And I won't tell you that. But I will tell you that he does acquire a fortune. How he does that is quite a story. And then he reappears as the Count of Monte Cristo, which is where the treasure was actually found. But as he appears as the Count, he sets about for the remaining years extracting revenge on particularly the three men who were responsible for his imprisonment. And the readers are swept up into the drama, the intrigue, and and the remarkable twists and turns that he executes to extract that sweet revenge. I say sweet because to one of his captors, as this story unfolds and this man that they thought was dead and imprisoned, or both, was alive and before them, driving home justice, when one of his one of his victims looked at him with questioning face. Edmund said, how did I escape? Escape with difficulty. How did I plan this moment? With pleasure. The story of alienation and the, the anger that, that built and his resolve to make things right is parallels another story. It parallels a greater story that we find ourselves in. The alienation that results from the brokenness of the world, the alienation between us and God that resulted from the fall. The alienation and the, the estrangement that exists between men and women, between husbands and wives, between family members and friends and co-workers, that estrangement is a part of a story. But so is resolve. But, but our story turns on that resolve because it is not the resolve to get even. It's the resolve of the one offended to make right all wrongs. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story that actually has transformed Saul into the one that we know as Paul. There was a transformation in his own life. And as he writes these words that we ponder today, you have to know and understand that he is speaking out of a story and out of a transformation of one who has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's us today. You see, the Bible recognizes that quarrels and distance that results and enemies and and payment and revenge are a part of the human story. If you were to do a concordance search, you would discover that the word enemy or enemies appears over 300 times. The Bible addresses the fact that there are enemies that, that are real and are alive and are at work. One of the reasons that enemy is something that we know a little bit about is 
is that we have a conditioned reflex. We have a conditioned reflex to hit back. <laughs> uh, sometimes on the playground, you know, it's with fists. Uh, but more often, it's with words or glances or cold shoulders. But that conditioned reflex is something that we all know about. Common sense demands get even. I mean, it says don't roll over. It says don't let them get away. But what we find when we come to the story of resolve, God's resolve for us, is we find that there is a better way. Surprise, surprise. There is a better way, God's way. God's way is always better. And what we find here in this passage, what Paul lays in front of us is this promise. That in Christ, and only in Christ, but in Christ, you have what it takes to refuse to turn, to inflame a quarrel, and possibly turn a friend and an enemy into a friend. You have what it takes to refuse to inflame a quarrel and to possibly turn an enemy into a friend. You might call it a principle of non-retaliation. It's a principle. It's an operating principle that has three parts or three elements or three movements. And I'm going to suggest to you that what Paul lays in front of us today is he wants us to see that there is someone to trust there's someone to surprise, and there's someone to behold. Verse 19 shows us kind of the first of those, someone to trust. When he, he takes words right out of Deuteronomy 32, and he says it's written, Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. God is repeatedly and continuously saying to us throughout this story of resolve, Trust me. I mean, he's saying it again and again and again, right? Trust me. And we know that that's part of what it means to, to love him and to follow him is to trust him. But in, he gets very specific in saying it takes an area where, where it may be the hardest place to trust him. I don't know what it is for you, but it might be this. If you've ever been really wronged by someone to trust God in that and with that is just downright hard. Because you see, when we, what the, the language that Paul uses actually, you, your footnote may explain this to you, but it actually means leave room. Leave room for the wrath of God. It's a little bit like this. When, when we take vengeance or retribution on as our own responsibility, we're taking the place of God and we're saying, God, you move away. This one's mine. I got this one. It's, it's stepping into the place that is rightfully his, which is why it's not only the song of, of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, which, by the way, was a song to learn and to sing. Vengeance is not mine. Vengeance is the Lord. I don't know what that tune sounds like, but that's something that is supposed to be a part of the rhythms of our life. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We're to sing that. Greg, can you help us someday? Um, we're to trust the one whose character is trustworthy. He's reliable. 
And then he tells us why we can trust him in the face of adversaries and enemies. And he says, because justice and vengeance is mine. In Proverbs we read, don't say this. I will do to him as he's done to me. I will pay the man back for what he's done. Don't say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. So the Apostle Paul is picking up on, from Deuteronomy, which he cites, and the Proverbs, which he's memorized. And he says, vengeance is the Lord's. It is his space, not yours. You are to leave room. God's wrath, you see, may one day come an ultimate judgment to those who abuse us. But his wrath may also bring enemies to repentance in this life. If you were to open to Isaiah 19, you will, would read, The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. There are times when God's strike is all about healing. And that's what Paul wants us to hold on to in this space, in this moment. Whatever happens, God will be perfectly equitable. We can trust him implicitly for this. And revenge is ruled out. Um, I was helped, and you may be helped. Uh, someone once, it was an author, holds two circles in front of the reader and says, this is God's responsibility. This is your responsibility. And in this case, God's responsibility is justice and vengeance. Your responsibility is to trust him. You have more responsibility that we'll get to in a minute, but it starts there. My responsibility, our responsibility is to trust the one who owns vengeance, who owns justice, to stand out of the way that he is in his place. Instead, we are to find creative, surprising new ways of dealing with the people who hurt us. That's our responsibility. And that is the ones that we are to surprise. We're to trust God and we're to surprise those who hurt us. How do we do that? Verse 20 says, to the contrary, instead of vengeance, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's what we're to. We're to pursue their good. We're to be creative and to go out of our way. Instead of gritting our teeth and getting revenge, we're to go out of our way to seek their good. It's to mow the yard of the person who's angry at you. <laughs> or to identify what it is in their life that needs attending to and moving in that direction. And then, but we know what that means. We know what it means to, to feed and to, to offer drink. That's plain. It's not as plain as the motivation that Paul gives. Here's where we scratch our heads. He says, For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What in the world is Paul getting at? Well, you may know, um, he's actually quoting the Old Testament. That shouldn't surprise us. Again, he quotes Proverbs 25, where you find those very same words. The, the difference between the Proverbs citation and what Paul records here is he leaves off a phrase. 
for some reason, he leaves off the phrase that heap burning coals on their heads and it's so, and the Lord will reward you. That's what we find in Proverbs and, 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 and it's a true truth that Paul omits here for some reason. We don't fully understand why he may have done so. The quotations are not always word for word, but he's pointing to the Old Testament and God's revelation and saying, there is something to keep in mind. Now, if you've ever had burning coals near you, you know that the best way to approach them is with asbestos gloves. Burning coals do damage. That could be an aspect of what Paul has in mind. They have an effect, to say the least. There's debate about what this little image really is getting at. The original force may have been something like this. Treat your enemy kindly, for that will increase his guilt. You will thus ensure him of a more terrible judgment and, and for yourself a better reward. There are, there's a, a way to understand that in that direction. But another view is, is that this proverb may refer to a ritual from, from the Near East at that time, Egypt in particular, in which a man testified publicly of his penitence by carrying a, burning, a pan of burning charcoal around on his head. We don't really know. But in either case, it's a vivid metaphor picture that, that the kindness that we would extend to one who has been unkind to us has an impact in their lives. And that impact may be to shame them for what they have done. But not merely to shame and to rub it in. Or as someone said, kill them with kindness. It may be something beyond that and most likely is that what we have in mind by that kindness is seeing a shame that grows into something else. Remorse. Repentance. And with that in mind, that is the, that is the heart and the mind that we are to have toward those who have offended and hurt and harmed and have done evil toward us is to want to see in them a brokenness that your goodness to them just might just might prompt the secret is to be able to see the evil and the evildoer as two separate things and then we'll be able to we may be able to show genuine love instead of retaliation then put to shame and maybe prompt or provoke them to repentance the best example of this no doubt in scripture is is David and Saul and some of your minds have already gone there uh, after David had been so close to Saul in a cave Saul was pursuing David his son and enemy in the cave that, that David cut off a corner of the king's robe, but for conscience sake would not lift his hand against Saul, even though the king was seeking David's life. David, you see, was a threat. He was the shepherd boy that had come onto the scene and, and was a threat to the, uh, to the kingdom that Saul had received. But listen to these words 
from 1 Samuel 24. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you were hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. You might see that, and I think we could rightly see that as coals of fire heaped on, David, on Saul's head by David. And we say that, I can say that because of the response, the effect. Listen to Saul's response. When David had finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. Apparently, though, Saul never opened himself to God's grace, but he well could have. And it is that possibility the Apostle Paul invites us into when he says, heat burning coals, to be poised in such a way to offer life to those that want to rob you of it. When we forgive... When we move toward those that have offended and hurt and harmed and sought our end, there are two results. One is the spread of evil is checked toward us. That hatred does not infect us. The other is that the spread of evil may be checked in the other person. He or she may be softened by our love, shame, and alarm and remorse may result. And that is our hope. That their, their, our interactions with one another would awaken in them something that they do not see. Something that really they cannot see. Until God opens their eyes. And it may be that he uses your love offensive. <laughs> Not offensive love. Your love offensive. To awaken them to something that they cannot see. And that may take a while, friends. It may take years. But if your 
love is actively in pursuit of the one who pursues you with unkindness and injustice. There very well could be remorse and shame and awakening. Paul says in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. And frankly, that's a requirement to do anything like what we've just been talking about. Do not be overcome. It can eat you up. And for some of you, it has. A sense of injustice, of being done wrong, it has eaten you up. And it then has control over you. Somewhere along the way, I don't know where this falls in the book, because I haven't read it yet. (laughs) But Edmund Dante says, Fool that I am, that I did not tear out my heart the day I resolved to revenge myself. Apparently, he was so overwhelmed by and overpowered by his sense of revenge that he couldn't see straight. It ate him up. Paul here basically says, to repay evil with evil is to lose the battle to evil. Some of you may remember this this episode and line out of the Lord of the Rings where we learn that, that any good person who chooses to use this ring that belongs to the evil Lord to put down the evil Lord would himself become evil in the process. And that's what Paul seems to be highlighting when he says, don't be overcome with evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. It's a military term, overpower. Overpower evil with good. In other words, the best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him or her into a friend. So, and so overcome evil with good. I found this little example helpful. It's a story out of the life of Benjamin Franklin. With, uh, there was a man that Franklin worked with with whom he had an adversarial relationship. He had to see this man regularly. They were, after, they were working on the same things, and they were required and, and needed each other's presence to, to move toward their common goal. But they just didn't get along. So Franklin got creative. The man had a large library, and a library of which he was very proud, and that was evident. And Franklin made the choice one day, and I don't know that it was because he needed the book as much as he needed the friend, but he asked to borrow a book from the man's generous library. He complimented the man about his library. He loaned him the book. Franklin returned it on time, maybe before. And when he returned it, he returned it along with a thoughtful thank you note. And that sole exchange turned Franklin's biggest enemy into an ally that they worked together. That's a simple one. But it's a picture 
of moving towards someone with whom you have had strained relationships and finding something that would be fairly easy for them to say yes to. <laughs> to ask that, something easy for them to do. And then be radically gracious and thankful and see what God does. In Exodus 23, we read, if, you're, if, you meet your enemies, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Why is that in there? <laughs> if you meet your enemy's do ox or donkey going astray, you are to bring it back to him. It's a little picture of moving toward an enemy, doing for an enemy something that the enemy would not expect. You see, there's someone to surprise. We are to surprise the one who has offended us. Dan Allender, who I quoted a couple of weeks ago, if you, if you, can't, you can't help but see the connection between verse 17 and these, just, just see it, go, go look at it. And so in talking about this topic, Dan Allender has spoken into my own thinking about it with words like these. Offering goodness has two effects. It conquers evil by surprising and shaming the sinner. But it also does something else. It invites the evildoer to pursue life. To pursue life instead of whatever it is they are pursuing instead of life. If your love offensive offers that person a chance to pursue something besides their own possessions, their own reputation, their own will, their own way, their own sense of right and wrong then you may be inviting them to pursue life. And some of us know that we have pursued all kinds of things instead of the life that God offers and calls us to. And you're simply looking at an, at an enemy and saying, would you join me? Would you join me in pursuing true life? Would you join me in pursuing the one who is true life? Allender says there's something about doing good that has the potential to surprise and supplant evil. It is an odd, precarious, and at first absurd approach to evil, but it is our Father's wise strategy. Our goal must be to conquer, that is to entirely annihilate evil, but we are to do so by feeding those who have done us harm. There's someone to trust. There's someone to surprise and there's someone to behold. Think for a minute who's writing this. Paul, who was Saul, who read, among other things, Psalm 69 about enemies. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Those are words given to us in Psalm 69 to pray. <laughs> and Saul prayed those and probably against the Christians that he was pursuing that he now finds himself in the midst of. There was a radical transformation. 
You see, there is a radical transformation between Psalm 69 and the Gospels. We, we know that, that enemies are real, and that's what we learn from Psalm 69. And, and the, the instinct to push back and to see them get their due is understandable and reflective. It's a reaction. And we have those words to say, but Psalm 69 is not the whole story. In fact, that's not all of Psalm 69. You see, everything has a context, right? <clears throat> when you see this story of resolve from Genesis to, to Revelation, as the Apostle Paul now saw that story reworked and re-understood, as he began to re-understand what, what Psalm 69 is about and the language that marks the fallenness of this world and that God's resolve has broken in to right all wrongs and to make things straight and all things new, is to say, that's not the prayer I pray now for my enemy. In the Old Testament, we, we know that the enemies of God were nations. In the New Testament, we know that the enemies of God are spiritual forces. And we can pray that psalm against spiritual forces. But when a real person stands in front of us, created in the image of God, we move toward him or her in love. You see, we move toward our enemies in love. Because that's what God did. That's what God does. That's what God is doing. Moving toward his enemies in love. Paul starts this chapter in 12 of Romans reflecting back on the story of resolve and redemption. In view of the mercies of God, friends, in light of what God has done for you in Christ, then therefore do these things. You see, Paul was transformed. He was transferred, his language that we read from Colossians, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And you know what happens when you're, when, you, when you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? You begin to see. You begin to see things clearly. And things that, that led to animosity and, and rebellion and, and tension and alienation you begin to see that person is created in the image of God like me. And just like a, a, a prism breaks the bright white light down into its various colors, the kingdom of light breaks things down that we'll be able to see that enemy, she's created in the image of God. We have one thing in common. We're created in the image of God. And God in his grace and his mercy has opened my eyes to see what he or she is yet to see. And it only happens when we behold Christ. You see, these things work backwards. It's only when we behold Christ, as Paul has done when he sat down to write this book. It's when we behold Christ that we have the capacity to surprise an enemy with love. We will not, cannot manufacture that until we first know that we were enemies loved by our Father. Pursued. It was why we were enemies, he says in chapter 5, that Christ died for us. He's still beholding that when he gets to chapter 12. 
And what he wants us today is to behold Christ, to then be able to surprise those who don't love us so well or maybe even painfully approach us. And it's only then that we really trust God with the results. It's it's near the end, basically, of Romans where Paul writes these words, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. There's one point in the story where Alexander Dumas has eaten up with this hatred. And he says to the woman who would have been his wife had he not been wrongfully accused and imprisoned, who wants, now that she discovers who he is, wants to, to go back and, and, and to start over and to, and to build the life that they had talked about. And he looks at her and he says, don't rob me of my hate. It's all that I have. And then the gospel comes along and takes the only thing that you have. Whatever it is that you use or would want to use to make life work, to take all that you have, to take it away, to melt it in the white hot heat of the gospel, that instead of hatred or revenge or whatever it is that we find instead a love, a love that transforms, a love that forgives, a love that offers love to the unlovely, even enemies. And so Paul essentially does conclude his book with these words. It's chapter 15, but when he writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Pray with me. Father, would you move us further into the gospel that we would taste and see what you have done for us in Christ to move us from being your enemies to your friends. And would that awaken us to the opportunities before us to extend that kind of love to people who do not deserve it. But Lord, none of us do. And we thank you that you've moved toward people who do not deserve your love, but receive it. But we receive it gladly with grateful hearts that are being transformed as we behold Christ, as we surprise our enemies, as we trust you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.